Now, if you have a Bible, uh, would you please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and want one, there's one in the pew, and the page number is there uh, in the bulletin this morning for you. Now, Mark's Gospel is probably the one I'm most drawn to, and I've... Uh, preached it in almost every church I've served. I've been studying it my whole uh, life. And the longer and longer I look into it, the more and uh, more I'm uh, just captured uh, by it. And though it seems short in, in some ways, in some ways um, it's the most striking of the Gospels and some of its stories are longer than any of the others. It's Peter's eyewitness account relayed to Mark and Mark uh, under the leadership of the Spirit, has uh, penned a work of art. And in it, one of the things that's most striking about Mark's gospel is he, more than any of the other gospel writers, shows us Jesus' humanity. And we'll see something of that in just a moment. So if you uh, are able, uh, please join us as we stand for the reading of God's word. Father, as we stand uh, to read, we confess that Apart from the ministry of your spirit, that these words will fall on deaf ears, on unreceptive hearts, and on our stubbornness. And so, Lord, favor us, warm us, open us, make us tender before you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Josie, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went on and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You may take your seats. If God came down and did what was um, so amazing, it went viral, that it trended on social media. They did things that were so exotic and oppressive that he plumbed the deepest of mysteries and spoke in the most gripping and compelling manner possible. Would you believe him? Would you trust him? Would you worship him? What if instead of an awesome display, God chose to come down in an unspectacular and ordinary manner? Do you think you'd even recognize him? Well, he did, and most of the people who met him did not. We have two contrasting scenes in the text I've read. One is of the luxury, the wealth, the power and intrigue of Herod's court. And if we're honest, these are the things we're drawn to. And the other is an unorthodox rabbi and his 12 disciples, a teacher unlike the distinguished teachers of his day, who called people not to follow the way of God revealed in the Old Testament, the Torah, but rather summoned them uh, to follow him. For he claimed for himself that he had authority over all things. Both of these scenes contain warnings. They are warnings about unbelief. Now for you boys and girls, unbelief is the refusal to trust God, uh, to commit yourself to him, to believe his uh, promises, and Unbelief blocks the flow of grace into our lives. It actually keeps us from receiving the good things that God would freely give us. There are two things I want us to see this morning. One is that Jesus encounters unbelief, and then he tells his 
followers, his disciples, they too will encounter unbelief as they minister in his name. Jesus encounters unbelief. Jesus returns as a rabbi, a famous rabbi, now with his disciples. He hasn't come to make a social call to visit with his family. No, it is to show the grace of God to people. And uh, it was customary uh, in that time. And so when Jesus enters the synagogue as a visiting rabbi, he was asked to speak. And uh, Luke records this event in the fourth chapter of his gospel. He tells us that he was handed the role of Isaiah and he read these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Every eye was fixed on him, and then he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, those who were present were initially very impressed Uh, by Jesus. The wisdom of his words, well, it matched what they'd heard about the amazing miracles that he had uh, performed. Uh, But the amazement turned to offense. Just why would that be? Well, Americans love a rag-to-riches story. You know, we just love to hear how Dolly Parton grew up poor in Appalachia, and rose to stardom, or uh, how it is that uh, uh, Howard Schultz, who grew up in the projects in Brooklyn, became the CEO of Starbucks. Or it just delights us to hear that Halle Berry, as a struggling actress, was reduced to the point that she had to sleep in a homeless shelter. We just love it because we want to believe that With hard work in America, you can achieve anything. After all, any child can grow up to be president in America. But in the ancient world, advancement wasn't based much on merit. It was mostly came because of your family, your background, your social class, your education. These determined what you would achieve and how high you could go. And so the people in the town uh, that Jesus grew up in thought that he was an upstart, that he was overreaching. They didn't have the credentials to be a rabbi. They knew him, and each of the questions they pose here tells you what they really are thinking about him. Isn't he just a common laborer? He fixed my mother's chair once. And how is it that he's parading around as if he's an educated rabbi? and a miracle worker. Isn't he Mary's son? Now that's a slur because Jewish men are always named for their fathers. And behind the question is probably a very dark insinuation that was rumored in Jesus' day that he was illegitimate. Aren't his brothers and sisters living here? In other words, Jesus is just a village kid. And the kind, uh, it's kind of like when my mom would say to me, I changed your diapers to kind of put me in my uh, place. They are offended by him. Jesus was so ordinary. They looked at him, at his humanity, their familiarity with him, and it kept them from actually knowing him. 
If only God had come in a less ordinary way, they would believe. There was nothing about his appearance that was striking. There was nothing about his family or his work or his education that would lead people to expect something special, to expect greatness. God had become man and he was hidden under the veil of ordinariness. And his ordinariness was like a steel curtain. Now the Holy Spirit directs Mark to use an unusual word in the Greek. It's the word that we get our word scandalize from and it's original uh, references to stumble. And you see, the people of Nazareth stumble over Jesus in the synagogue because they can't reconcile the contradiction uh, between his origin and his deeds, between the boy they know and what he claims for himself. And so they refuse to believe. They refuse to believe in spite of the evidence of his gracious words and the powerful miracles that he had done. They are filled with unbelief. And Jesus is amazed. And you should also understand he's disappointed. Hear the disappointment in these words. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And then Mark adds, He could do no mighty work there, except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now that's an arresting uh, statement. Jesus is limited in what he can do there. What can that possibly mean? Well, the point is not that Jesus is uh, powerless apart from people's faith. It's not kryptonite to him, unbelief. But instead, the absence of, in the absence of faith, he couldn't do the, his mighty works in accordance with the purposes of his ministry. For to work miracles where faith is absent would add to their guilt. They would have more light. And not to walk in that light that they have would bring judgment upon them. It would actually serve to harden them against God. And as a result, their unbelief blocked the flow of the grace that Jesus would have brought them. Now, I've seen it in my office. They came and they asked for help with their marriage, and I was glad to offer what I could. It took three meetings to unearth the depths of their problems and to get them to agree on what they were. And then it took several more meetings to begin to systematically address Uh, what was going on in their marriage. The conversations were difficult, emotions ran high, but it felt like progress was being made. And then we hit the wall because each of them in their own way began to make demands, angry demands, demands for things that actually were good things, things that the Bible expects people to do who were uh, married. But when change wasn't forthcoming, they despaired. They didn't believe their marriage could improve. They didn't uh, believe change was possible. They actually didn't believe that God could meet them in their struggles and that their marriage could change. Their unbelief blocked the flow of grace in their lives. It prevented them from receiving the many good gifts that uh, Jesus would have given them. 
And the same thing can happen to you. It can happen to any of us. You can be so familiar with the facts of Jesus' life that he came to die on the cross and what that accomplished. So familiar with church and people and the pastor that it all just seems so ordinary. And you can't see the invisible presence and power of Christ. And so your heart grows cold. Be warned, writes the author of Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I can still see their faces. They sat where you sit today. They sat under the ministry of the gospel, many of them for 15 years. I knew them as children. David and Will and Alan and Casey and Ashley. I command you in the name of Christ to set aside your unbelief today to receive Christ and obey him, to come to him, even if this is the very first time, and acknowledge that you're a rebel, that you're resisting him, that you're not doing what you know he wants you to do, that you've turned away, and to surrender to him unconditionally. And then speak to me after the service, if you've done that. Jesus is only amazed twice in all the Gospels. Once by a Gentile and his faith, and here. He's not amazed by our sinfulness, our propensity to do evil. No, it's by our hardness of heart and our unwillingness to believe. Unbelief is a great hindrance in the life of Christians. And I often like to tell people it is like black ice. It is very hard to detect on a dark night. It runs the spectrum from a lack of expectancy when we come to worship to a hopelessness and despair that Jesus could give us new joy, a deeper taste of life, that he could heal a deep wound or restore a relationship. The primary remedy for unbelief is also uh, given in the book of Hebrews. He writes, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, it's in our fellowship with each other, in receiving exhortations uh, from each other, whether it's in the public ministry of the word or someone opening the scriptures with us, uh, whether it's when we're present for worship, but we sing not only to God, but to each other, uh, these uh, wonderful uh, truths. Uh, We need to have conversations with people where they point us to grace and to the sufficiency of Christ, um, where uh, Our desires, which often are out of sorts and disordered, need to be redirected to promote in us deep honesty and encourages us to trust. The disciples are right there in Nazareth. They're right beside Jesus, and they have observed a very important lesson. Because uh, just before these events... They've seen Jesus do all these amazing things. 
They saw him uh, calm a storm and then liberate a man from an army of demons to heal impossible illnesses and to even raise a little girl from the dead. They, and now they see a situation where Jesus can't do any miracles. Jesus tells them to expect unbelief as they minister. Just as he experienced unbelief, so they too as well. Mark uh, does something he does a lot in this gospel. So in verses 7 to 13, uh, he tells us about Jesus sending out the 12. And then in verse 30, he brings the report. And in between, he is sandwiched. He's wedged right in here uh, the story of the death of John. He's done this purposely. He does it repeatedly, this sort of thing. It's one of his uh, teaching uh, methods. And it's in understanding the connection between these two things that the outer parts, the, the bread, if you will, the filling informs us of something further we need to see. So we'll look first at the center of the sandwich, the, the meat, or if you prefer, the vegetables that you have stuffed in there. Um, and, uh, and look first at the account of the death of John. Now, King Herod hears about Jesus and his ministry, and he fears that John has come back as a ghost to haunt him. After all, uh, he had arrested John and had him put to death. Now, this story uh, involves us understanding a little bit about Herod's family, but the family of Herod is very complicated, um, and I'd need, a, I'd need a whiteboard up here uh, to draw it all. Um, this particular Herod is known as Herod Antipas, and he divorces his own wife and then persuades the wife of his brother, who oddly enough is named Herodias, uh, to marry him. And the marriage uh, for a Jew of your brother's wife is forbidden in the law of Leviticus. And so John, who's a prophet like Elijah, uh, confronts the king and publicly condemns uh, his marriage. That leads uh, to John's arrest. And there are probably a couple of things happening at the same time. There's some political reasons because John was very popular and having him preach this message could stir unrest in Herod's uh, kingdom, as well as to satisfy his wife. Uh, she wants John dead. She wants him silenced in the fullest possible way. But she's unable to convince her husband, because John is a holy man, uh, perhaps he feared that striking a holy man would have repercussions uh, for him. Um, and actually, in a curious sort of mixed way, he was drawn to John. He liked to listen to John, even though he was puzzled by what he heard. Well, Herodias waited and waited for the right opportunity. And undoubtedly, she had conveyed to her daughter uh, her resentment about John. And she enlists her as an ally when the right opportunity uh, comes. It's Herod's uh, birthday uh, party, something Roman officials celebrated with uh, great zeal. All the leading men uh, in his kingdom are uh, there. You can be certain. Uh, you can't see it quite as clearly in English, but... Uh, the wine is flowing uh, liberally. 
And Herodias sends her daughter in as entertainment. She is a teenager, and she performs an erotic dance, and the male guests who've had too much to drink are delighted. And so the king makes an offer. He says up to half his kingdom, but actually he couldn't do that. Rome wouldn't let him give away even an acre of land. She goes out to her mother uh, and inquires what should she ask for. And she says, the head of John the Baptist. And the final gruesome course offered at the meal is John's head on the platter. Now this account is sandwiched as an in between Jesus sending out the 12 and they're coming back uh, to report in verse 30. Jesus sends them out in pairs as his official representatives. Uh, traveling in pairs had many benefits. It provided uh, safety on the road. They could support each other as they ministered. The truthfulness of their testimony about Jesus would be established as they would be two witnesses. And they go with the same message that Jesus uh, announced, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and they gave the evidence the kingdom was present in the healings and deliverances that took place. Jesus tells them to travel light. They were to trust that God would supply all their needs, not even an extra tunic to keep them warm at night because Jesus wanted them to rely on God to move someone to show them hospitality. And having once accepted a place to say they were not to dishonor it when better accommodations opened up. But not everyone was everywhere was going to embrace them. They were to expect rejection. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Now this was a symbolic act based on the custom of the day. Uh, when, a, when a Jewish businessman would travel out into the Gentile world and he came back uh, to the Holy Land, he would sh carefully shake the dust uh, out of his clothes and off his feet because that dust uh, was ritually impure and unclean. It defiled him. And Jesus tells the disciples to do, which is symbolically saying that this Jewish town is heathen. It's Gentile. To reject God's messenger was to reject grace and to be in danger of judgment. At the same time this warning is sounded about unbelief, there is also a final summons to repent, to recognize the danger that they're in. Now we should expect that not everyone will receive our witness and that we'll encounter unbelief as well. In the summer of 1973, I underwent a dramatic change as God uh, invaded my life. I was 18, I'd become a Christian, and I went back to speak to my friends and my family and several of my high school teachers about what things God had done for me and the tremendous things and how I was alive. And none of my family or friends accepted my witness, though some of them forgave me. I admitted my failings, my hurts, my sins against them. Uh, uh, and my parents, they saw this radical change in me. My father's only uh, comment uh, was, you've become a holy roller, a religious fanatic. Unbelief means that the gospel message will not be received by some of those you speak to. 
but it ultimately means we're dependent on God to open the hearts of people to believe. Our responsibility is twofold. One is to express our dependence on God through prayer, by praying uh, for people, uh, uh, for, for their life change in them, for the opportunity to speak to them. And when we have the opportunity to even share just a tiny bit of the gospel, to pray uh, earnestly for them. And it's also the other responsibility is to leave the results to God. But rejection isn't going to be the only thing we experience. The 12 uh, did not experience only or even mostly uh, rejection. Many people uh, receive the message and are healed. Now understand this, because it's very easy for us uh, to lose sight of this. There has been no time in human history, there is no culture uh, that's receptive to the call to abandon its idols and to turn in repentance and humility to God. That wasn't true 100 years ago. It wasn't true 400 years ago. It wasn't true 1,000 years ago. And it wasn't true in the first century. But God is able to overcome all our resistance. You see, the Holy Spirit still convinces people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it's upon his ministry that we must depend. Otherwise, we'll grow discouraged and we'll fall silent and we'll just think, well, everybody is going to respond in a negative way. Therefore, why bother? That is not faith. The disciples report back. Now, Mark has filled this sandwich uh, with the sending and returning of the 12 with the death of John. And what he's telling us by this is that our witness sometimes, uh, uh, as a result of unbelief, uh, will result in our suffering. You see, sometimes people will snub us. uh, We'll lose relationship with us. Maybe we get passed over for a promotion or a raise, or I have a friend who was convinced uh, that he got a D instead of the uh, A he deserved in a course because he'd shared the gospel with his professor. Uh, There are Christians uh, throughout history and today in our world whose families disown them when they profess faith in Christ. There are believers who have been beaten, imprisoned, and put to death, as was John. John's death anticipates Jesus' passion on the cross. John goes as Jesus' forerunner. In fact, Mark only twice talks about John. First, when he's the forerunner of Jesus and prepares the people to hear his message as he summons them uh, to repentance. And he's also the forerunner of Jesus' death. Both are executed by political tyrants. Both die as a result of intrigue. Herodias seizing the moment at that birthday party and the Jewish leaders who plot together uh, secretly. Both die as righteous and innocent victims. Both in apparent weakness. Jesus dies this way so that you might receive the grace of God. Jesus in his death has become, he's chosen to be weak, 
to do for you what in all your strength you cannot do for yourself. This is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You will pay a price if you identify with Jesus in a world of unbelief and resistance, of superficial judgments and decadence and envy. To follow Jesus comes with a cost. And this table is for those who've identified with Jesus publicly and are willing to pay that cost. If that's you uh, and you're our guest today, please come and join us at this table. We want you at this table. This is the Lord's uh, table. And if that doesn't describe you, we are glad you're here. We ask that you might take this time and seek Christ. You might respond uh, to what you've heard uh, in